Welcome to Faith This Morning. We're in a series on walking in the light. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter during this, this month. Ephesians 5 is about the Christian walk. In honor to Kumar, one of our elders last week, uh, began talking about verses 1 to 2, walking in God's love, imitating Christ as we rest in him as beloved children. The Apostle Paul is, is going to do a hard turn for us right now. Uh, he, he's going to say, but sexual immorality. I mean, it's a hard turn, isn't it? It's a hard turn. Abrupt, uh, addressing the satanic distortion of love. Uh, God's eternal love, agape, distorted by what some have called eros defiled, eros romantic love, eros defiled, the satanic distortion of the holy love that was created to promote human happiness and human holiness by a holy God. So I have some serious things to talk about today. Now, R.C. Sproul, the theologian, stated that the United States has experienced in the history three major profound changes that are called revolutions. The first was the American Revolution. That's why we said goodbye to England. The American Revolution. And then in the 19th century, there was the Industrial Revolution. Made a big impact in our country. And he says that the third great revolution was in the 20th century, the Sexual Revolution. That's what it's often been called. And it's been very abrupt. And I was surprised to hear R.C. say that, uh, that it's, it was probably the, even more dramatic, more surprising, more culture-changing than the first two. But having lived through it, like many of us have, I think that's true. It has changed our world. We have witnessed the complete reversal of moral values in just one generation. It's startling. Most of us are aware of, of the singer-performer Tina Turner. Tina Turner. The, the famous uh, singer and performer, she was raised in the church as a teen. She joined Ike Turner in his review, married him, became one of the singers, the lead singer there. But it was a very abusive relationship that did not last, unfortunately. But Tina was very talented, and she was tough, and she launched out on her own. And she had a much greater, succeer, a greater career after Ike. She said goodbye to him. She won multiple Grammys. <clears throat> And her definitive song from 1984, in many ways, honestly explains the cynicism, the sad cynicism that has been a byproduct of the sexual revolution. You must understand, though, though, though the touch of your hand makes my pulse react, that it's only the thrill of a boy meeting girl. Opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore it. And it means that you, you must try to ignore that it means more than that. What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. What's love but a secondhand emotion? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? A broken heart. She speaks for a lot of people, doesn't she? There are a lot of people with broken hearts in our world. And today my title is, What's Love Got to Do With It? Let's look at the passage now. Uh, 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 <clears throat> As you listen, watch for a careful shift that Paul makes from, you were darkness, but now you are light. Look, look for that. We, we have a new identity in Jesus Christ, and he gives us hope. And, and this new identity impacts eros, this sexual life, this romantic life of ours. It impacts that very important 
arena of our souls. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 14. Listen to God's word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. God's word from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Tough words, aren't there? Some tough words there. Sexual immorality. The, the word in the Greek is porneo. We got a word pornography from that word. Uh, impurity. Covetousness, filthiness. Who's Paul talking about here? Can't be talking about you and me, could he? Nah, he wouldn't be. We're all good and honorable and respectable people, right? How dare he talk to us like that? Let me remind you what we said last month. This is not a letter written just for the saints at Ephesus. It's a circular letter, a general letter to all the saints and all the churches through the ages, in fact. And yes, this is to us, and it is for us, and we need to hear and heed it. We are all impacted by the fall in all areas of our lives, and therefore we are all sexually broken. All of us. I, I don't see Jesus in the room. In, in chapter 2, Paul said, we are dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are easily deceived by the evil one. And we more and more live in a world that condones and even seeks to normalize the sexual insanity of this world. So the world and our flesh and the devil are all there, and we must fight them daily. I hope this, this sermon, when it's over, doesn't disappoint you, uh, but it might because in, in, in a sermon you can't address all the issues. And we have all kinds of people in in the house. My goal actually is to do what we always do. Let the passage carefully guide my thoughts and point us to Jesus as our only hope. One of the biggest problems though in the, in the 21st century church is that many people in the pews listen to, to every sermon assuming that it's designed to make them feel good. I mean, we feel so bad all week. You don't want to go to church and feel bad, do you? You want to, you want to go away feeling good. You want to go away recharged with hope for the week. And, 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 but, but, you know, the gospel looks at things a little differently. The, the gospel says that there are legitimate reasons why we don't always feel good. We're living in a distorted, broken world, and we're broken, distorted people. <laughs> Not only are we sinners, we are sinned against. 
as sinners and victims, we experience the pain and the misery of a fallen world. And the only remedy for both victims and of sexual sin and perpetrators of sexual sin is the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is the key, not ignoring our feelings. So when and if that feeling of guilt rises, don't just quickly smash it. Don't ignore it. Deal with it. But, but, but don't just you deal with it. Take it to Jesus who can deal with it. Take it to Jesus who's the helper, who's the heart fixer. The prophet Isaiah said, come, let us reason together. I invite you to hear what God has for us this morning. I want you to know that I am very, very aware that this biblical perspective on sexuality is very strange and countercultural in our world today. I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware that even in the house today, there are children. I want to be alert to the children. I want to, I want to speak in a way that honors their innocence. And I'm aware that there are young people who have been raised in a sex-crazed culture. And this is pretty much all they know, a sex-crazed culture. And there are many unbiblical assumptions about themselves and about life in our world. I'm also aware that there are probably single adults who understand Christian sexual ethics but have decided that they don't want to follow it or they can't follow it. They shrug their shoulders and say, well, it just must be okay because grace covers it all. I'm aware there's some of you right now who may be feeling the Spirit's conviction for living a life that you know is not God's will. And I'm not here to blast you and pour, dump on you. We, we need to repent and turn and promise God. But, but you've done that, and you fall again, and you promise God, and then you fall again. You repeat that cycle. So you get tired. So you just, you give up the fight. I'm also aware that there are parents here, very aware there are parents here, who question God because they thought they were raising their children to love God and keep his commandments, and, and yet they experience the pain of children rejecting not only the faith, but the sexual ethic that goes along with our faith. Or, or their children seek ways to follow Jesus while embracing an unbiblical sexual ethic. I am particularly aware of that, because that's where I sit, brothers and sisters. A few weeks ago I shared uh, the blessings of, of Tara and I having two more grandkids this summer. And certainly every child born is a blessing. Uh, but I hope you know that this celebration of the babies was, was not uh, a, a celebration of the circumstances surrounding their birth. births. See, God has a clear order and, 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 and clear plan for his people. And it is a wise order. It is a good order, an order that promotes joy, and great blessing, and, and we know this not from, just from the word of God, which, which would have been more than enough. We know this from our own personal experience, if you've, if you've walked with God in, in, in faithfulness. I want to lay out today uh, God's plan but, but before we look at the unfortunate deviations from God's plan. So we're going to talk something about, a little bit about marriage. Though that, There's a marriage sermon, if you look at the passage in, in Ephesians, there's a marriage sermon coming down the road. <laughs> But we, but we can't talk about Eros defiled until we talk about Eros. Now, not only am I aware of all these things, I want you to know that God is aware, and God cares. He cares. And he has a word of challenge 
and a word of encouragement for each one of us today, I believe, that we will listen to his spirit. So I come today in a, in a lot of, with a lot of hats on. I come as, as a parent. I've been married I'm a parent for 31 plus years. I come as a husband. Been married to Terry for 36 plus years. I'm, I come as a man. You know, most of all, I come as a sinner saved by grace. And I've been that. I've been a sinner for 63 plus years <laughs> and counting. My point is that I want to, I want to lead you and me to Jesus. <laughs> the one who said, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. The, 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 the main point today is, is that God is the creator of sex and he is redeeming and transforming sexually broken people who are called to be models of healthy sexuality. Let me repeat it. God is the creator of sex and he is redeeming and transforming sexually broken people who are called to be models of healthy sexuality. We're going to look at sexual, sexual enmity with marriage as the renewal of covenant. We're going to talk about uh, sex outside of marriage as the breaking of covenant. And then I'm going to just tell you that God has some good news for covenant breakers. That's where we're going. First, biblical morality highlights the renewal of covenant. Uh, verse 4, this is one word in verse 4 I want to, want to highlight. Uh, it's the word, it said, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Interesting word. Clearly in context, the apostle is saying we ought to have an attitude of thanksgiving towards sex. This may startle some of you, I know. <laughs> we were raised believing the straw man argument that, that so-called Christian or Victorian or puritanical morals cause individuals to be uptight and inhibited and to some kind of bondage. No, that's not what scripture teaches. It, it was God who sanctioned the first marriage and said to the first couple, Adam and Eve, it is very good. It is God who established the feelings of attraction that men and women throughout the ages have felt, an attraction that leads to the healthy marriage covenant that benefits individuals, benefits society, and benefits the greater generation, the next generation. So let's look closely at the context here. Stott says this, John Stott. All God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for joking. To joke about them is, is bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. See, God established a covenant with his people. It began in Genesis, and he promises to be our God, and, and we, we promise to be his children. Is it a relationship with obligations? Yes. It's an agreement, a promise between the children of Israel and the Lord to, to, to lovingly fulfill certain obligations towards one another in the presence of witnesses. And God called on the creation and the surrounding nations as witnesses that he would fulfill his promise to do his part. And now we, God's redeemed New Testament people, who have been what Hebrews calls, we have what Hebrews calls a better covenant. We are called the bride of Christ. So, so the covenant relationship of a bride and a groom is a model of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. A covenant, an agreement, a promise between two parties to lovingly fulfill certain obligations to one another in the presence of witnesses. And so the Old Testament covenant promises between God and his people were sealed 
and then renewed, often by very public rituals. Likewise, there should be a public ritual aspect to the covenant promises of marriage relationship and frequent covenant renewals. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Malachi, and even Proverbs 2 that we heard, uses the word covenant. Malachi chapter 2, 14, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There's that word again. See, the private wedding bed consummation of the one flesh union in the Hebrew wedding custom followed the public affirmation of the marriage covenant. And this is and has been God's order. Private physical union is still to be a renewal of promises that were made publicly in the past. This is the biblical understanding of sexual morality. Sex is not dirty. Sex is beautiful when done according to God's order and with the proper meaning and commitment. And so the writer of Hebrews can say unabashedly, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge sexually immoral and adulterous. So our understanding of immorality must begin with a proper view a proper view, sex is God's good gift. Now, now, I know, again, there's singles in the room. I know many of us are single. And obviously, since not everyone gets married, it's not God's will for everyone to be married. Let, let me say briefly that there's a long list of individuals in the scripture who apparently loved God in the midst of their single or widowed or widower state. This list Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother Mary and Miriam and Anna and Ruth and Paul and John the baptizer and Jeremiah and Joseph in Genesis and Nehemiah and Daniel and of course Jesus, the God-man. There is every indication that each of them in their single state with all the natural yearnings and desires submitted to God's view of sexuality, embracing the gift of singleness in their lives for the season, and some even perpetually. Point is simply this. <clears throat> We're to be thankful for sex. It's not dirty. Whether we're married or single or young or old, we're to be thankful for this thing called sex. And there's a couple, just a couple of reasons. First, sex models and deepens the one flesh bond between husband and wife. That's, what, that's God's design. But then even in a broader way, sex is among other things God's wonderful plan for the continuation of a human race. What a beautiful plan. We could talk about that, but think about it. All of us could say that without sex, none of us would be here. I think we can say that. I'm not a scientist, but I think I can say that. <laughs> and, and then the, there's the unconditional love, the spiritual union, the sensitivity, the care for the individual person. All these elements of the gospel are displayed in the marriage covenant when it is renewed. When sexual activity is done in the safe context of covenant marriage, it protects the hearts of those involved, protects the children, and even has long-term benefit for the greater society. That's God's ideal. But just like in our relationship with God, we're all sinners, covenant breakers, and the breaking of the marriage covenant is reality in our world and in many of our lives. And it, with it comes deep pain, despair, 
frustration, and hopelessness. We need to understand sexual immorality in terms of the breaking of this covenant, the breaking of covenant. And let's look, let me look at the verses now. MacArthur says, The world claims to want love, and, and, and love is advocated and praised for every, from every corner. Romantic love especially is, is touted. Songs, novels, and movies, and television serials continually exploit emotional, lustful desires if it were genuine love. Questing for and fantasizing about perfect love is portrayed as the ultimate human experience. It should be no surprise that the misguided quest for that kind of love leads inevitably to, to immorality and impurity because that kind of love is selfish and destructive and a deceptive counterfeit of God's love. See, if, if, in, if in the biblical view of the world, sexual behavior in marriage is covenant renewal, then, then sexual immorality is breaking of covenant. And look at the text in verses 3 to 5. Paul uses lots of words here. A few words that give us a sense of the seriousness of this. I'm going to look, I want to look at those words briefly, but I also want, I want to look at them in, 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 in terms of three, uh, our area, three arenas of battle that each of us face. The, the arena of behavior, the arena of speech, and the arena of our hearts. Look at the verse. But, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. First, behavior. Immorality, which is porneo, and Impurity, which is a more general word. Covetousness, which is wanting and taking that which doesn't belong to me. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. That's what it says. Which mean, it, it can mean the, the current or the future spouse of another person. This, this is any sexual activity outside of biblically sanctioned marriage covenant. In, in verse 5, Paul repeats the same three words. Look down at the page. The same three words are repeated in verse 5. Stott says, the Greek word for fornication or, or, or sexual immorality and impurity together cover every kind of sexual sin. In other words, all sexual intercourse outside its God-ordained context of a loving marriage. And to them, Paul adds, covetousness. Surely because they are especially degrading forms of it. Namely, the coveting of somebody else's body for sexual gratification. So Paul adds that phrase, covetousness, to those two. That's behavior. The second arena is the arena of speech, which is interesting. We don't think about this often. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. Filthiness is, is general obscenity, talk that is degrading and disgraceful. Silly talk is, is dull or, or moronic speech. It's gutter speech. It's where it, it, the idea is, is low speech. And then coarse jesting is, is not low, but it's more sophisticated. It's 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 what someone has called the double entendre joke, the skillful turn of a phrase. That's the idea that Paul has when he uses that phrase in the original language. Uh, a journal paper was published recently, a, a team by Gene Twinge, the author and, and psychology professor at San Diego State University, analyzed certain English books that were published between 1950 and 2008. And overall, they found that the writers were significantly more likely to use profanity in books published in 2005 to 2008. In fact, they were 28 times more likely than books published in the early 1950s. And they wrote, uh, one key factor may be self-expression. Swear words allow the free expression of emotion, especially anger. Due to the greater valuation of the rights of the individual self, 
Individualistic cultures favor more self-expression in general and allow more expression of personal anger in particular. Thus, a more individualistic culture should be one in which a higher frequency of swear words are used, unquote. That's a rationalization against what Paul has just said, isn't it? <laughs> Paul says, no, no, watch your words, watch your speech. Behavior, speech, but then, then this word covetous, this word idolater, it's talking about our hearts, isn't it? Our hearts. Verse 5, who is covetous, that is an idolater. Covetous and idolatry linked together. Very important word, idolatry. It's not about statues and, and, and icons, but it's about the heart. A heart that is drawn away from God, away from our creator and redeemer, who, who is to be our first love. So, so Paul links it here and elsewhere with covetousness. Another sin that originates in the heart. In Matthew 5, we learn from Jesus that lust begins in the inner man, the heart. An invisible part of us. Matthew 15, Jesus dissects the human sin condition by saying, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. He then lists a lot of things. Among that list is evil thoughts, adultery, sexual immorality. He says these are what defile a person. We see the descriptive term darkness in verses 8 and 11. In contrast to the holy deeds, <clears throat> the works of light, he warns about immoral deeds, deeds of darkness. This is, this is consistent with what Paul had already mentioned in chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. Listen to what he said earlier in chapter 4. <clears throat> now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility, futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. Did you hear the words he used? Futility of the mind, of the understanding darkened, hardness of heart, the inner person, the inner man, the heart, the soul. That's what Paul's getting at. Now, the moral crisis that we see in our world is not a unique crisis. It's not a unique crisis in, in, in one sense. You can look back at Leviticus chapter 18, 19, and 20, the deeds of the Canaanites that, that, that Moses talks about there. The Old Testament prophets, they often showed a connection between idolatry and, and, and adulterous worship of the pagan nations and the immorality that, 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 that they um, also uh, got involved with. And sadly, that became a very prominent thing in Israel and Judah and led to the pain and the captivity that they experienced. Or in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, the New Testament church, we see there that they viewed sexual appetites as merely something that's physical, like, like our, 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 our need to eat food. They, they connected. That was the, way, the connection that they had. It's just, it's just physical. It's very similar to what Tina Turner said. What's love got to do with it? See, saints have always faced temptation throughout history. It's not a new battle. And, and yet, <clears throat> in another sense, the sense in which this revolution has come at a very unique moment in history. Our, our, our wonderful technology in our day, for all that it's done to benefit us, has actually stripped the church of most of the traditional arguments that were historically used for living a moral life. Have you know, did you notice that? Have you noticed that? R.C. Sproul talks about that. Reminds us that the 21st century, all the classic warnings that godly parents have given their children 
have all but disappeared. With our modern medicine, there's virtually no fear of social disease. With our modern medicine, there's less fear of having a crisis pregnancy. Even the social stigma that was at one time connected to this, of being sexually active before marriage, that social stigma, well, that's all but disappeared, folks, among young people. And let's not forget the power of technology there. The secular pop media proclaim their message to the culture, and social media creates community for those who choose all types of behavior. So you feel, okay, this is okay. There are others who share this, these beliefs, these behaviors. We're seeing not only people doing deeds contrary to God's holy calling, but promoting and approving others to do the same, just as Paul said would happen in Romans chapter 1, verse 32 when people reject God's order, the influence of church, of parents, the greater culture are no longer there like they were. That, that is what makes this era of history very unique. Very unique. Verses 5 to 6, moving on, there's some warnings there about self-deception. Look at it. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that's an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words. A lot of empty words in the air, aren't there? For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. How do we respond in a day like this when sexual pleasure becomes an object of worship? How do we respond when sexual pleasure is practically worship? When, when people love pleasure, or lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, as it says in 2 Timothy. Well, Many believers just say, well, I'll just give in. I'll just give in. This is, this is where society is. This is where the culture is. It must be okay. I trust it's not your response. Many respond by saying, well, let, let's, let's think this through. Let, let, let's compromise. Just like in the Old Testament, who continue, continue to do the rituals of worship and to mouth that they worship the Lord while sacrificing to Baal and, the, and, the, and Molech and the other gods. And that was their downfall. They tried to worship God and worship false gods. And that's what many in the 21st century church are proposing. Let's just compromise and rationalize our behavior and our beliefs. But the third response, it's the only response that we can do, it's just stand. It's that posture of stand, the courageous way, but the road less traveled for sure. Fight a good fight. Stay in the battle. We must stand for Christ and his word. Never rationalize it, please uh, a wicked and dying world around us. Fight the battle in community. There's strength in numbers. Pursue purity. Model purity. Refrain from ungodly sexual conversation. Do all we can to keep our minds and hearts pure. You know, a doctor prepares for surgery by scrubbing. Make sure he's perfectly sterile. They know that the utensils, the utensils that they will use have the ability to heal if handled properly. The same utensils, though, if used in the wrong manner, have the ability to make things worse. In fact, to bring contamination and maybe even death. Our bodies have the capacity to bring blessing and health and joy and life to others, or if used in the wrong way, to bring spiritual contamination, even spiritual death. Don't break covenant, but, but rather give your soul and your body to God to be a source of blessing and joy to you and to others. 
Why give yourself to God when nobody else seems to care about God? Why, why worry about it when you're already guilty of breaking the covenant anyway? Because there is grace for those who break the covenant. That's the good news, folks. There is hope. There is grace. There is forgiveness. We have a higher calling from God. We're, first of all, we're called to be light, to be light. We've become children of light in Christ, it says, by faith. And this involves both forgiveness of sins and being transformed into children of God by the Spirit of God. Therefore, walk in the light is what Paul exhorts us to. Verse, verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then because you're light and you begin to walk in light, the fruit of life will begin to, of light will begin to come out of your life. That which is good and right and true. And that which reflects a holy, loving God. Notice the order Paul has here. It's the classic New Testament order. Paul doesn't say, act like light and then you'll become light. That's not what he says. He says, you have become light. Now walk in it. Subtle, but very important. This is consistent with the radical gospel of Christ, you see. God changes us. He gives us his spirit. And then he says, walk in my spirit. Walk in my power. Walk in my strength. You are my child. You are no longer one of the sons of disobedience or the daughters of disobedience. So now go and imitate me. Be filled with my enabling strength and power. I'm asking you to do that, which is difficult, yes. That which seems impossible, yes. But I'm also giving you the strength to do it. That's the gospel. That's how the gospel works out in our lives. MacArthur says, in Scripture, the, the figurative use of light has two aspects, the intellectual and the moral. Intellectually, it represents truth, whereas morally, it, it represents holiness. To live in light, therefore, means to live in truth and in holiness. The figure of darkness has the same two aspects. Intellectually, it represents ignorance and falsehood, whereas morally, it connotes evil. Verse 14, the last verse, he says, Awake, O sleep, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That verse seems to be an allusion to Isaiah chapter 61. Arise, shine, your light has come. Isaiah 61, as that prophecy is ending. It's an allusion to that, and some believe it's an extract from an early hymn, maybe an Easter hymn or a baptismal hymn of the early church. But, but, it's, but, but as, I, as I think through this, the things that are said in this passage, there's this kind of, Paul, Paul is, is, is raising a, the, the transformation of what we were in Adam to what we are now in Christ. In Adam, we were in a state of sleep, in a state of death, in a state of darkness. In Christ, we have been awakened, we are, we are now alive, and we are now light. There's a real contrast here that he is building in this book of Ephesians. We're called to therefore be light. Secondly, we're called to not just be light, but to expose darkness. That's also part of our calling as God's people. Verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. One commentator, Skevington Wood, says, it's, it is the deeds that have to be shunned, not the doers. It's the deeds that are shunned, not the doers of those deeds. Paul, he says, is, is not advocating pharisaical separatism. The follower of Christ will go where his master went and meet those his master met. But though he does not withdraw from the world, he refuses to adopt its standards or fall on its ways, one with its ways. He's concerned to produce the fruit of light. So far from participating in them, the believer should expose these 
practices. We must expose, you see, the lie that, that sexual freedom is liberating. We, we need to do that because it is enslaving. And, and Scripture declares it, and broken lives, broken relationships also show it. We expose darkness. And, and lastly, we're, we're, we're just to celebrate, we're to rest in God's grace. Verse 8, you, there's a word there. Let me just lift out that one word. The word is inheritance. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Salvation is not earned. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not earned. It is inherited. A child qualifies for the parent's inheritance by doing what? By simply being a child. About having the right relationship. That's what it's about. Likewise, our salvation is a byproduct of being a child of God. We are adopted into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, and we trust Christ's work on our behalf, and we rest in it because the work has been done by him. Now notice the, the forgiveness and, and the transformation, the hope in, in this parallel passage from 1 Corinthians where Paul is really digging deep on, on the issues of morality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit, there's our word inherit, the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. There's the word again. And such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul understands that he's talking to saints who weren't always saints. Sometimes they were ants. <laughs> Sometimes they weren't walking with God. He knows that. But now, God has done a work in their lives. And he says, that's what some of you were. But now, you, you, God, God has, by grace, you're saved. And God has, has, has done his, begun his transformation work in your life. And then later in the chapter, as it ends, he, 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 he kind of climaxes, fleeing from sexual immorality. He's pleading in, in, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, every sin Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Boy, there's a lot there. Do we don't have time. The, 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 the psychologist will tell you that there's something there. That somehow this sexual sin goes deep into a person's soul, is what Paul says there. Paul, who didn't go to psychology school, but he has the Spirit of God as anointed apostle. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, I've only scratched the surface, and I see my time is, is up. <laughs> Hopefully, I've, I've pointed you to Jesus as our only hope, <laughs> because Jesus makes a difference. I, I'm one of many witnesses that, that Jesus makes a difference. By his grace, Terry and I have been married 36-plus years. We're looking forward to a few more laps around the track. I can put it that way, by God's grace. The question many people ask is, how can, how can two sinful people stay faithful to one another for over so many, for so many years? The answer is, it begins with trusting him one day at a time. Trusting his grace, trusting his spirit, trusting his faithfulness, trusting his work in your heart and in the heart of your spouse, knowing that though I am weak, he is able, walking in watchfulness, Humility, repentance, walking in love as Christ has loved us. When I was a little kid, and most of you as little children, probably you woke up, you, you, you grew up with your parents sometimes um, giving you a surprise of a, of a trip to McDonald's, and you'd get some Happy Meal, and you thought it was great. 
I mean, what could be better than a, than a happy meal? Especially if you, especially if you, if you turn the drink into a, the, the soda into a shake. I mean, that's heaven, right? A happy meal. Yeah, Eureka. But I got older, and I realized there was more you could do with, with, with a piece of beef. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there it is. Don't get too hungry. Our culture is telling us to go and eat the fast food, folks. If that's all there is. God says you ought to wait until you can really have something much more enjoyable, more wonderful, filet mignon. He has something that he knows will enjoy us, will be even more joyful for us. He tells us don't settle. And I must remind us who are married that even the filet mignon of this world is not all that there is because the scriptures tell us that when we see him face to face, we won't even need the filet mignon, if I can put it that way. We'll see him face to face, and our hearts will be satisfied completely. I urge you, seek to glorify God with your body. Thoughts, words, deeds. Who among us, who among the entire human race can stand before a holy God? Romans reminds us there is none righteous, no, not one. But there's good news, isn't there? There it is. It's good news for those who say that there is none righteous, no, not one, because there was one, the God-man, who was more than a man and who perfectly fulfilled righteousness for you and for me if we've trusted him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he established this meal as a reminder of what he did for us, as a renewal of covenant, <laughs> that relationship that we do regularly. I'm going to ask officers to come forward as we continue. This is not my table or the Presbyterian table. This is the Lord's table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. He, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me, the new covenant. Every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you announce or proclaim my death till I come again for you. What Jesus did on the night in which he was betrayed is he turned the, the, the yearly uh, uh, Jewish um, Passover supper into a, a New Testament sacrament. And, it was, and it's based on the, the, the covenant relationship that we have with our God. We, we are, and, and we do this until that day when the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven takes place, Revelation. This is a covenant meal. This meal is those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, and he's their only hope. This meal is for those for children who've been, been invited through their parents through the session to, to partake of it. If you're a visitor and you know Jesus Christ and you understand the gospel and you, you're, you're seeking to walk in faithfulness to God and to his people, this is for you. But, but if, you, if, you are not, if you're not there yet, you're still wrestling with these things and you're trusting yourself and you're, 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 you're hardened or not repentant, we ask you to not take of these elements because the scriptures say that there, there, there's, a, there's a blessing when we take these, things, these elements in the right way but if we do it with the wrong hearts that aren't sincere before God, it's a sham, it's ritual, and, and Jesus hates it. So I'll give you a moment to, 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 to the scripture say to a man should examine himself. Examine your hearts for just a second.